0: Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians were a splintering church in Corinth, and they were made up of true believers and deluded believers. And by deluded believers, I mean not true believers, merely professing believers. So, there were some in the church of Corinth who called themselves Christians, may have even believed themselves to be Christians, but at the end of the day, they were self deceived. And they were not actually true believers, they were not actually Christians. So, to use Paul words, within this church were spiritual people, he calls them. In chapter 2, verse 13 and 15, and in chapter 3, verse 1, there were spiritual people in this church and there were natural people. There were people of the spirit, there were people of the flesh, he calls them spiritual people, he calls them. Natural people in chapter 2, verse 14, and in chapter 3, verse 1, and verse 3. That is, there were people who belonged to Christ. Spiritual people, he calls them. And there were people who belonged to the world. Natural people, he calls them. And all of these people were in the church. All of these people were a part of the visible church. So think about that. When you looked at this church, there was one group of people. But in God's mind, there were two groups of people. There were those who belonged to Christ, and there were those who belonged to the world. So one of the things that Paul has done in this letter that he's writing to them, One of the things that he has done for their good is he has passed along identifying marks. He's helping them figure this out. Do I belong to Christ? Do I belong to the world? Who belongs to Christ? Who belongs to the world? Everyone is saying they're a Christian. Who really is a Christian? Who are the true believers? So, if you listen carefully, he's been passing on identifying marks. Here is one. Those who belonged to Christ believed the wisdom of God and those who belonged to the world believed the wisdom of the world. And those are two different things. And Paul has been helping his readers and us to understand what those differences are between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. So one mark is that those who belong to Christ, those who belong to God, they subscribe to the wisdom of God. There are others, and they subscribe to the wisdom of the world. And by that you know that they don't belong to Christ. They belong to the world. And here's another mark. Those who belonged to Christ boasted, and we'll define that again today, in Christ. Those who belonged to Christ boasted in Christ. But those who belonged to the world boasted in men. So there is this visible church, and this has always been the case. There is this visible church, the visible people of God, and there is the invisible church. There is the invisible people of God that God sees and knows are His own. And so the church, every church, universal and local churches, have been made up of Christians and non-Christians. All claiming to be Christians, of course. It was a problem in Corinth. It's a problem today. So Paul is helping them, helping us to work through this. Those who belong to Christ, they believe the wisdom of God and they boast in God. Those who belong to the world believe the wisdom of the world and they boast in men. In our text today, ending chapter 3, Verses 18 through 23, Paul is going to bring this to a point, like the point of a spear. He's going to bring this to a sharp point by basically asking, Which one are you? Which one are you? He knows that this letter is being written to a church where everyone's knee-jerk response to that question is, "Oh, I'm of God. I boast in God. I believe the wisdom of God. I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. He knows that's the knee-jerk response to the question, "Which one are you?" But he's bringing this on the end of a spear. And helping them with everything that he's loaded in their minds so far to really ask themselves the question, no, stop for a minute and think, which one are you? His point is, you're not all Christians. It's why there's division in this church that he's confronting. It's why there's so many problems in this church. It's, it's why you had to write to me and tell me about all of the issues. It's, why, it's one of the reasons I'm writing to you this letter. Better for you to know now that you're not a Christian, even though you think you're a Christian, than find out when it's too late that you were never a Christian. So It's a loving thing to do. Better, Proverbs says, is open rebuke. Than hidden love. So the most loving thing that he can do for the church in Corinth and for us. Because listen, we're no different. We're no different. Surely there is people among us who are of the world but think they are of God. So they're very important words. So He will bring us that question while working with three themes. And here are the three themes that I see in these verses. They're in the previous chapters as well, but again, they're coming to a point here. And the three themes are belonging, believing, and boasting. I so happy they all started with the letter B. This made me excited. Sometimes I have to think for a long time to make a match, but not this week. You know my affinity for alliterations. So we'll look at each of them the belonging, the believing, and the boasting. And as we do, God willing, we will be able to discern. Whether we belong to God this morning or we belong to the world. And remember, we're listening to, myself included, God's Word. And in God's Word alone, we learn who we are. More importantly, who God is. And how we can be made right with God. There are many sources that claim to have the answer to life's questions, but God's Word alone holds the answer to those questions. It's why this is a very important time in our worship service. It's not an important time because I'm up here. It's not an important time because of the preacher. It's an important time because of what the preacher holds in his hands. And if when... God's Word is preached, God comes down and uses the sermon, you'll never be the same. I mean that wholeheartedly. You'll never be the same. That's why we always, and again today, need to pray before I preach this sermon. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with affection, and push our wills to trust, honor, and obey you. Keep us from the wisdom of the world. Keep us from boasting in men for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 if you haven't already. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take home with you, you will find today's text on page 619. I said that there were three themes in this text. Belonging, and believing, and boasting. And these same three themes... We're in an earlier set of verses. If you want to flip there, you can. In chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. These are old themes, according to Paul. And they're all in these two verses, just a couple chapters before. Here's what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. And because of Him, that's God, you are in Christ Jesus. That's the belonging You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That's the believing that the belonging believe. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, so that as it is written, you remember this text? Let the one who boasts, boast. In the Lord. So there's the theme of boasting. And he hasn't mentioned it since then. I think he's actually wrapping it up. At the end of this section that we're in today. So in those verses the same three themes as in our text today. But the difference. There's a big difference. The difference in chapter 3 is that these themes come under a banner of warning. So they were introduced back in chapter 1, and here they're mentioned again, belonging, believing, boasting. But here, they're under this banner of warning. And that warning is the first five words of our text. Verse 18. Here is the warning. Let no one deceive himself. That's the warning. Don't be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. This is possible. People do this all the time. He's saying, be careful you're not lying to yourself. Not just lying to yourself, but believing the lie. That's what it means to deceive yourself. To tell yourself something that is not true. And that actually believe that thing that you're telling yourself that's not true. That is self-deception. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That means that Satan wants to trick and cheat and deceive God's people. He is known as the great deceiver. He's been doing it ever since the garden. It was his very first tactic. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. He's deceiving. He's lying to Adam and Eve. And apparently, been doing it from the beginning, apparently according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, he will be successful with many. He'll be successful in deceiving many. Listen to Matthew 7. For me the second most frightening verse. In, in the Bible that I've read. Matthew chapter 7 verse 22. On that day. The day is the day of judgment. So this is Jesus looking. Down the future. It's the day of judgment. Right, so life is Over. On this planet and the living and the dead are all judged. They're all going to face the judge, Jesus Christ. And he says about that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What happened? They deceived themselves. There are many, the text says, who apparently will be surprised, they will call Jesus Lord. When they go to meet him. And they will. This is part of the problem of course. Start recounting all of the good things that they did. Not only good things that they did. But amazing things that they did. Maybe even supernaturally powered things that they did. So they don't understand why. They're not being accepted into his kingdom. And his response to them is. I never knew you. Depart from me. You worker of lawlessness. So they had heard the word of God. They knew the word of God. But they didn't actually know God. They didn't actually. Obey God. James 1.22 Do not just listen to the Word of God. Do not be merely hearers of the Word of God. If you're merely hearers of the Word of God and not doers of the Word of God, what does James 1 say you're doing? You're deceiving yourself. In other words, you're making yourself think you're a Christian and you're not. It's the same issue here in Corinth. And so Paul says, let no one deceive himself that should frighten you that should frighten you that it is possible to be deceived it is possible to think that you are a Christian and not be a Christian that should scare the pants off you let no one deceive themselves so apparently that was happening in Corinth Richard Pratt a commentator he says Corinthian believers had fooled themselves into thinking they were doing the right thing by dividing the church and exalting human wisdom to support their contentions with others. And so Paul writes this to them. Let no one deceive himself. So a good question would be, how does a Christian avoid Self-deception. How do I make sure that I'm not deceived? How do I make sure that I'm not self-deceived? This is not the point of the sermon, but you'll see this is what Paul is doing here. And I think it's the biblical answer. The, The best thing that we can do as Christians to avoid self-deception is self-examination and this is not something Christians enjoy doing there are entire evangelical systems that would promote not doing this Don't question your salvation. Don't examine yourself. The first thing they would say to you when you say, I'm not sure I'm a Christian is something like, of course you're a Christian. Don't think like that. Don't think negative thoughts like that. But this isn't what the Bible teaches. It's why 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Don't assume. Assumption is not the same thing as assurance. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So that's the warning banner over what Paul is going to say here. The warning banner is watch out. Don't make any assumptions. Let no one deceive themselves. So in light of that warning banner over this text. I've organized the rest of this sermon into three questions in accordance with the three themes. So those three questions are number one, who do you belong to? Question two, what do you believe? Question three, what do you Boast in. We're going to ask those questions. In that order. Who do you belong to? What do you believe? Who do you boast in? But I want to point this out. Those questions are not answered in that order. In this text. And so I think that needs an explanation. That's not the order those will be addressed. As we just read through. The text. But if Paul's goal is self examination, and I think it is, if that's his goal, I think that this order is going to be most helpful in light of the fact that Paul has already made it clear who a Christian belongs to. So that's the first question we'll ask. In our text, it's the last question he answered, but he's asked and answered that question several times already, which is why I think it's okay that we ask that question first. So I wanted you to understand why we're doing that in a a different order. So let's begin with question number one. Question number one is, who do you belong to? And to answer that question, we need to skip down to verse 23. Where we are. Plainly and beautifully told, and you are Christ's. Who do you belong to? Or another way of asking that question, who do you follow? Many of the Corinthians had this wrong. Paul brought it up in 1 verse 12, and again in this chapter, verse 4. I follow Paul," they said. "I follow Apollos," some said. "I follow Cephas," some said. They were saying, "I'm with the Paul party," or "I am with the Apollos party." Their allegiance to certain men, even good men. These weren't bad men. It's not like one was good, one was sound. The other was not. These were all good men. But their allegiances to certain men was causing division to the church because ultimately, that's not who they belonged to. Christians were told in verse 23, you belong to Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you belong to Christ. Christ Owns you. You have been made by him. That includes all of you. And Christian you have been bought. Is the language scripture uses. You have been bought by Christ. You have been purchased. By Christ. And the price was his blood. Shed on the cross. There is no higher cost to be paid. Christian, you belong to Christ. Whatever else you belong to, you first belong to Christ. And I know you. And a lot of you belong to a lot of stuff. And you follow a lot of stuff. And this book, and this author, and this teacher, and this preacher, and this organization, and this group, and on and on. But whatever else you belong to, you first belong to Christ. Whatever political party, Whatever theological distinctive, whatever church denomination, first, you belong to Christ as your primary allegiance. It's true for me, it's true for you if you're a Christian. You belong first and foremost to Christ. So Paul has said this before. It's in verse 23 here, but... He said in chapter 1, verse 2, that he was writing this letter to the church in Corinth. The church what? Of God. The church of God in Corinth. He's reminding them, you belong to God. According to chapter 1, verse 9, you, Christians, were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ. You've been called into Jesus Christ chapter 1 verse 30 because of him that's God the father you are Christian in Christ Jesus in other words he's been saying it over and over again regarding your belonging Christian you belong to God in 1563 the Heidelberg Catechism was written and in my opinion, the best part of the Heidelberg Catechism is the very first question. I think they get off to a better start than any other catechism. But here's the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is what is your only comfort in life and death? The Heidelberg Catechism is much more pastoral, whereas other catechisms are more theological. It is theological. But it's pastoral. It, it's applying the truth to your soul. And so it asks that first question Hey, what is your only comfort in life and death? Well, what's the answer? That I am not my own, but, and here's our word, but belong body and soul, that's all of me, in life and in death to my faithful Savior. Jesus Christ, Christian, that is your only comfort, your ultimate comfort in life and death, that you do not belong to you. Thank God you belong to Jesus Christ. It's belonging. So who do you belong to? Today. Right now, as you sit there, ask yourself, examine yourself, Who? Do you belong to? Do you belong to Christ? Do you belong to the world? Now the next two questions help us answer that question. They help us sort this out. Who do I belong to? So question number two. What do you believe? What do you believe? That's the next question we're going to ask ourselves. It's the question provoked in verses 18 through 20. So now we go back up to the beginning of our text. There's that warning. Let no one deceive himself. If. Anyone among you. Right. So this is a problem in a church. If anyone among you. Thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. So according to verse 18, being wise in this age is not a good thing. That sounds pretty good at first. I want to be wise in this age. I want you to think I'm wise. I want people to think I'm wise. I want to be known as someone who is wise. But whatever this is, Wise in this age is not good. In chapter 1, verse 26, Paul calls it wise according to worldly standards. Which begins to explain what this means. Wise in this age means wise according to worldly standards. To be wise in this age. And Paul made this clear in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Is to be regarded By the world as wise, but to be seen as a fool in God's eyes. Now that's not what I want to be. If being wise in the eyes of man means that I've got something that to God makes me look like a fool, I don't want that wisdom. That's not the wisdom that we want. Chapter 1, verse 20 says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So that's the wisdom that the wise in this age have. That's the wisdom that is according to worldly standards. Paul calls it the wisdom of this world. So to be wise in this age is to believe Talking about believing now is believing the wisdom of the world. Now, on the other side are those whom the world regards as fools, but they are wise in God's eyes and they believe the wisdom of God. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. This is a different kind of wisdom. It's good wisdom. We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden. And what's the phrase he uses? Wisdom of God. What do you believe? The wisdom of the world? Or do you believe the wisdom of God? So again, Paul says, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And why? What's the big deal? What's wrong with the wisdom of this age? What's wrong with the wisdom of this world? Paul goes on by quoting two Old Testament texts. He says first in verse 19, for... That's the reason. This is why. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. That's the explanation. In other words, the wisdom of this world is not real wisdom. It's not real wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge for life. It's knowledge for life. That helps you live life. Live life well. Live life happily. Live life to the fullest. This is what wisdom enables you to do. And there is wisdom from the world that says this is life. This is how you should live. This is the answer to all of life's questions. And it's doomed. It's wrong. It's in conflict with God. But it sounds good. Paul has made that point. It's popular. Paul has made that point. But it is, at the end of the day, actually folly. For it is written, and he quotes two Old Testament texts God catches the wise in their craftiness. Just read the Old Testament. There are so many amazing stories in the Old Testament about people who thought they were wise, who thought they all figured it out and had these great plans like Haman, who built these gallows to have one of God's men hung on. And at the end, do you remember who hung on those gallows? Haman. He was not really wise. His plan didn't succeed. He was seen as wise. He believed he was wise, but he had the wisdom of the world. It wasn't the wisdom of God. So God catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from Job 5.13. And again, verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile, which is a quote from Psalm 94, verse 11. So what do you believe? Examine yourself. What do you believe? Do you believe the wisdom of the world? Or do you believe the wisdom of God? Do you understand the difference? It's not like everything comes to you with a title on it. It's not like every book or every thought or embedded in every film. It's not like, oh, and this right now coming up is the wisdom of the world. And then you decide whether to embrace it or reject it. It's much more subtle than that. The wisdom of the world comes from the world. The wisdom of God comes from the Word. That's it. The wisdom of God is found alone in the Word of God. The wisdom of God is found alone in the Word of God. S. Lewis Johnson said, consider those aspects of human wisdom that overlap divine wisdom and contradict it to be the wisdom that is foolish in the sight of God. The way to be wise, truly wise, is to accept the divine wisdom and divine wisdom is foolish in the sight of the world. Another way of asking the question, what do you believe, is where do you get your answers? The Christian's response to every question, every problem, every issue is, what does the Bible say? That's always the question. I'm facing this problem. I'm thinking about this issue. I'm faced with this dilemma. I'm being taught this in class. This person is telling me this. The Christian asks, what does the Bible say? That's where we find our answers. And if anything that's coming from anywhere else contradicts God's Word, we abandon it for God's Word. And when Christians do that, many times they will look like fools. And people will call them fools. How can you believe that? How can you do that? How can you live like that? How can you raise your kids like that? How can you listen to that? How can you stomach that? How can you preach that? How can you teach that? How can you agree with that? And there may be big numbers. that tell you you're a fool. But we answer all life's great questions with the word of God. Who am I? What am I here for? How should I raise my kids? What should I look for in a wife or husband? What is marriage? What is sexuality? What is government? What is a right view of the natural world? What is meaning and what is purpose? What is right and what is wrong? The wisdom of God is found in the word of God. And that is where we answer those questions. And you can find answers to every single one of those questions somewhere else. Loudly. But what will you believe? In the Bible alone is found the wisdom of God. And so Paul said in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So who do you belong to? What do you believe? What do you believe this morning? One more question. Who do you boast in? Who do you boast in? Hopefully you're seeing the logic of this order. What you believe determines who you boast in. That's the connection between verses 18 through 20 and verses 21 to 23. They're connected by that word so. You see, in verse 21 it begins with the word so. Paul has just said basically worldly wisdom is no wisdom at all. So or therefore, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in the sources of this Worldly wisdom. Those who belong to Christ. Believe the wisdom of God. And boast in God. Those who belong to the world. Believe the wisdom of the world. And boast in man. Paul says let no one boast in men. To boast means to pride oneself in. To boast means to have confidence in. Where is your pride centered? Where is your confidence centered? For the Christian it should not be in anything other than Christ. But it could be It could be your reputation that you boast in it could be your job it could be your accomplishments it could be your kids it could be your associations it could be your church it could be your affiliation it could be your race But we belong to Christ. We identify with Christ. In Him we find our identity. Not in our politics, not in our accomplishments, not in our ethnicity, not in our reputation, not in our affiliations, not in our denominations, not in our associations, but in Christ. And therefore, we boast in Christ alone. Isn't that what the Corinthians were doing? They were boasting in men. It's one of the things that Paul has been confronting. They were boasting in themselves. They were arrogant, Paul tells them. They were boasting in Paul. They were boasting in Apollos. They were boasting in Cephas. Here's what Leon Morris said about this boasting. Paul turns the thoughts of the Corinthians away from the wisdom of men that had meant so much to them. No more boasting about men. For Paul, there was a legitimate place for boasting, but he does not find it in men. And he talked about that in Chapter 1, verse 31. The Corinthians were glorying in the creature. The Christian glories in the Creator. So, who do you boast in? What do you take pride in? Do you have confidence? Why? For the Christian, The answer to all of these questions is Christ. So in conclusion, there's just a couple more verses. And they take us back to the theme of belonging. We've answered our questions, but you'll see that these take us back to belonging. It's verses 21 through 23. And this serves as another argument to not boast in men. Which is why it begins with the word for. So let no one boast in men for. Here's another reason. And we're told this. All things are yours. It's belonging again isn't it? So Paul has told us two things regarding belonging. Christian one is you belong to Christ. And then the second is everything belongs to you. Obviously I had to. I had to really think about that this week. That obviously doesn't mean some things. What does that mean? All things are yours. Does that mean I could just come over to your house today and open up your garage and see a bunch of tools and think they look nice and take them? because? And I have a verse. All things are yours. And I assume that includes your the tools that I want. Does it mean there's no such thing as private property? Is this an argument for socialism? All things are yours. We've got to figure out what this means. He goes on to explain, and he covers a lot of ground, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, that includes your tools, or life or death or the present. He's talking about time now or the future. And then he says it again, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's why everything is yours, because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God and God belongs to, there's nothing higher. So all things are yours. And that's a reason that we should not boast in men. So what does he mean? In what way are all things yours? In what way are all things mine? Well, first he names these men that he's mentioned three times already. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Now remember, the Corinthians were saying they belong to their teachers. I belong to Paul. I belong to Peter. I belong to Apollos. I follow him. I follow him. That's my guy. That's my man. I like his personality. I like the way he preaches. I like his theology. Right? That's, that's what they were doing and they were, they were dividing up. So they were saying, I belong to this teacher. And then Paul turns around and says, all those teachers belong to you. So why are you just picking one? Why allegiance to one? You don't belong to your teachers. Your teachers belong to you. All of them. Christian. Christian who's a, a member of this church. I'm not your only teacher. Pastor Jeff is not your only teacher. Pastor Greg's not your only teacher. I hope you respect us as teachers. I hope you listen to us. I hope you learn from us. I hope you're helped by us. But we're not your only teachers. I personally have all kinds of teachers. Most of them are dead. I thought about it. I, I wrote it down. I mean, I spent time with 12 different guys this week. I just sat down and, and listened to them. And these teachers, and I listened to them because these teachers, they, they belong to me. In some, They belong to me. I sat down with John Piper. In case you forgot, I've got a picture over there of me with him. Just saying. I sat down with John Piper, John MacArthur, Doug Wilson, David Strain, Charles Hodges. He's dead. Might creep some of you out. But I sat down with him this week. Leon Morris, Steve Lawson, Richard Pratt, Don Carson, John Calvin, he's also dead. Anthony Thistleton... S. Lewis Johnson. Half of these men are not living on this earth anymore. I spent time with them this week. And opened their books. And listened to them. And they taught me the word of God. And those teachers and many more teachers are mine. They're all mine. So why would I just choose one? Why would I just choose two? Why would I say, I'm with this guy, I'm with this guy. They're, they're all they're all yours, I think is the point that Paul is making. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Caiaphas, but then he goes on beyond just teachers, or the world, five things, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All these things are yours. So in what way? In what way are all things yours? World, life, death, present, future? I think this is what it means. Christian, all things are yours in the sense that all things are for your good. Everything in the world, everything in life, even death. We've been freed. They've been freed. Hebrews 5 says, all those who all their life were held in slavery by their fear of, what's every person afraid of? Death. They were freed. Why? Because, Christian, when you die, you go to paradise. You go to be with Jesus. That's why Paul could say, for me, to live is Christ. So my life, it's all about Christ. And to die is even better. And the world said, that's a fool. But it was the wisdom of God. To die is gain, Paul said. Christians talk to one another and they speak of other Christians. so-and-so doesn't have much more time. Great! Excellent! we don't necessarily do that. Why? Because we want to be sensitive to those who maybe know them better than we do, who have a relationship with them, who, while they're going to be joyful are also going to be sorrowful. And so we want to mourn with those who mourn. So we don't act like that. But Christian, in your heart, when you hear that another Christian is about to die, you should be, and the world thinks this is foolish, but it's the wisdom of God, you should be filled with joy. Really? They're only days from meeting Jesus? A, a week, you say? Only weeks to live? Oh. That's great. To die is gain. Even death. Even death belongs to you, Christian. It has no sting, Paul will say to the same church. It's got no sting power over you there's nothing to fear it's all for your good all things Christian all things are your servant from God's sovereign hand all things are your servants everything all is the word he uses is under the sovereignty of God as your servant for your good let me give you a couple quotes Margaret Thrall wrote, every possible experience in life, and even the experience of death itself, belongs to Christians in the sense that, in the end, it will turn out to be for their good. And Richard Lenski, he writes, I love this picture he creates. It is as if all things in life. So again, that's what the text is saying. All things are yours. World, life, death, present, future. All things, even the pain, even sickness, even difficulty, the sunrise and the sunset, the sunshine and the storm, the calm water and the waves All things are yours. It is as if all things, Lenski writes, are a multitude of servants surrounding us on bended knees. They hold out their precious offerings to us. Some of these servants, like pain and injury and sickness and grief, may at first have a stranger look. To us who do not know our royalty sufficiently, it is God who commissions them all and makes each one bring us some blessing so that as kings unto God, we shall lack nothing. That is the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of the world wants to pick it apart and says, no, this is good and that's bad and that's not for your good, if this is for your good." And, and, and this is, no, all things are yours. God is in control of all things. Romans 8:28, He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Everything. This is the wisdom of God. These things that once enslaved me, now serve me. They have become gifts from God for my good and the praise of His glory. Everything belongs to us because we belong to Christ and everything belongs to Him. So now I'd ask the questions in this order. Number one, what do you believe? What do you really believe? Question two, who do you boast in? And question three, you should know then who do you belong to? Do you belong to Christ? Or do you belong to the world? Now there's good news. Everyone here that belongs to Christ once did not belong to Christ. At least in their experience. There was a day they came to belong to Christ through faith. They believed the Gospel. Believed God's Word. The wisdom of God that Once was foolish or illogical or didn't like it. You believed and it changed everything. And you were no longer the center of your world, you were no longer the object of your boasting. God became the center, He became the Son. Your life's been revolving imperfectly around Him ever since. For those of you who right now do not belong to Christ, why not today come to Christ and belong to Him? Believe. These are not just words. This is the wisdom of God. Believe. That Jesus is a savior. That he came and lived. And suffered. And died. And rose from the dead. So that. Sinners. Like you and me. Could be saved. Could be reconciled to God. Could be adopted by God. And brought into his family. To belong to him forever. That's the promise of the gospel. And the promise is extended. And the call is extended. To each of you who can hear my voice right now. So believe. And repent. And turn from sin. And your own way. And start relying on. Trusting Jesus Christ for salvation and life. For those of us here who belong to Christ, we, we worship Him at the conclusion of every worship service through what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, where we do something in obedience to Jesus Christ. We remember and proclaim. What he has accomplished for us on the cross. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's do that together today. Let's proclaim the Lord's sacrificial death to one another today. If you're visiting, you may be welcome to take communion with us if you are a Christian, if you are a baptized believer that has placed your faith in Jesus Christ and if you are a part of this church or uh, another church that preaches the gospel then you're welcome to take communion with us today we'll have leaders up front who will serve you if everybody would enter into the center aisle and come forward and then return to your seat after getting the bread and juice and then wait and we'll take communion together this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now in response to the preaching of your word. We pray that your word would, would be effectual. God, we pray that it would change us and and move us. And give us more joy or conviction, whatever's needed, God. And now we turn our attention to the sacrificial death of your son. We're, we're getting up out of our seats and we're we're taking this bread and this juice and remembering the body and blood of your son Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made so that we could be saved. May you be glorified in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.